1: and their essential
2: love of justice.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 4th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome, Katherine Smith.
3: Greetings from Atlanta.
1: And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, uh, tonight got a big show coming up in about... 20 Minutes is one of the absolute hottest names in Democratic political circles, Um, really was able to separate facts from opinions and had some of the best projective information going before the election. He's the head of the New Democratic Network, uh, Simon Rosenberg. And Simon's going to join us in about 20 minutes, and we're going to talk to Simon about, you know, why he was so successful, his work with his organization, and and what really people need to look for moving forward um, to make better predictions because we certainly have plenty of information. It's just how to use it. But we know that there's still just, uh, what, three days left, counting um, today on the 2022 electoral calendar until the Georgia runoff happens And so we're going to start off and spend plenty of time there. And, Tim, I think you're going to lead us off with an outrage of the week.
0: Yes, sir, I am. Um, I really want to talk about one issue from one candidate, Um, and that candidate would be Herschel Walker. Uh, Now, we know about the nutty things he talks about and about the things that he's been charged with and the fact that maybe he's not even a resident of this state and so on and so forth. But this thing that he seems to be doubling down on is just driving me to the point of distraction. Walker advocates again for, uh, let me quote him on this, Quote, gas guzzlers with the good emissions, and no, I'm not a biblical interpreter, and I have no idea what he's trying to talk about, but I do know this. He keeps attacking electric cars. He he does not believe we should be involved in them. Uh, he's got it in his head, and he says this. That is part of Joe Biden's Green New Deal, which I didn't know we had a Green New Deal. I know we don't have any Green New Deal law. I don't know where these people keep coming up with this, but that's what the man says. Now, there's a coming business to Georgia uh, called Hyundai Metro Plant America. over in Bryan County. And it's going to be a huge automobile and battery assembly factory that's going to employ 8,000 people. Uh, Suppliers to this factory will also employ 2,400 more people to meet the demands of this factory. Um, The other uh, factory that that we've talked about right here on this show, um, over on I-20, is the Rivian plant. It's going to employ 7,500 people. And over on I-85 80, near Athens, uh, there's going to be a battery factory for Ford. And it's going to employ 2,600. If you've been doing the math, that's at least 18,100 high-paying manufacturing jobs. And the money pumped into Georgia's economy and to the Local economies of these communities will be, in a word, massive. And Herschel Walker opposes all of this. Now, I'm sure he takes that stance because his handlers told him (laughs) to, because I I personally don't think Herschel Walker sits around and thinks about issues very much. Uh, at least I know he hasn't been accused of that by too many people. But he needs to think about this. Practically every big-name GOP office holder in this state supports all these factories, these electric vehicles. They want them here in Georgia. They are a huge part of the economic future of this state. I'm sure they are not happy with what Herschel Walker is saying. It's just got to be a losing issue for him, among many losing issues for him. And that's where I'm going to turn it over to you and and Catherine, David, to try to make sense of what Herschel Walker is even trying to do with this issue.
1: Well, and don't forget, Tesla moved their headquarters from California to Texas. Texas, the state that Herschel Walker has called home for the past 30 years since he joined the Dallas Cowboys. The state, we found out that he still gets his homestead exemption in. Um, And Tesla is like the number one name in electric cars right now. So um, not only is he – impacting georgia's uh, economic future he's impacting his other home state of texas's economic future uh catherine i'll let you talk on this before we take it on to the broader discussion of all that is this um campaign
3: yeah it's kind of a weird um thing to drill down on uh, to me uh it doesn't seem very, um, well, I don't think it's very a very sophisticated stance, number one, but that doesn't surprise me. It just seems like there's some other matters that if he was going to talk about them, he might, I mean, I think everybody's talking, uh, Republicans across the country talked a lot about crime during the um, lead up to the midterm, so I'm a little surprised you're not talking about that or or you know inflation or the things that really have an impact on a lot of people uh, I think electric cars don't have i mean obviously they have a great impact on the people that would get those jobs and that's really important, but it just seems like an odd uh, an and i I wonder where that um I mean, I agree with David that it's – I doubt it's um, Herschel Walker that's coming up with these ideas. You know, someone's telling him to do it. So it just seems like an odd thing to to focus on to me. And I I, I don't know what the – I don't have – I can't fathom what the reason is behind it, but it does seem strange. Hmm.
1: Yeah, and I do know that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert you know, the real fault police in the Republican Party, they're the ones that really get onto issues like this. Um, and, and, you know, it comes from that. In 1950, cars ran on gas. In 2050, far more cars will be electric. And 1950 good, future bad. And, and it's just that same old dynamic that everything fits around in it. And it's not reasonable. There's no science involved. There's no economics involved. It's just nonsense. And unfortunately, we have one political party who seems to be putting up the same type of candidates that really are not intellectual, are not well-reasoned. And I'm not saying the entire Republican Party, but I'm talking about folks like Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tommy Tuberville, Herschel Walker. Three of them are in office. Hopefully there won't be a fourth. Well, well, a question
0: here, David. As I made an allusion to, I I don't know if Herschel's looked around or not, but this state, all of its constitutional officers are Republican. The state, um, although we vote, we're voting for Democrats in some nationalized elections, the Senate and the presidency and stuff. But right now, the state of Georgia is run by Republicans, Republicans who have brought these factories and these yeah. jobs to Georgia. He is cutting the very throats of the people that he is asking to support him, and I don't understand the logic behind that, do you
3: No, it doesn't make sense. Yeah.
1: And so, you know, obviously this is just one nonsense issue and a long string of these. Um, Let's go ahead and kind of talk more about, you know, the race in general. Um, Early voting started, and after – when we had our show last week, we had had two days of early voting. Um, Some counties had not had any days. Um, More Democratic counties had either had voting on Saturday or Sunday, and the Warnock campaign used that to build a very early lead. And then during the week, more Republican counties came online, and it's hard to assess. You know, we can kind of give pluses here for the Walker campaign, pluses here for the Warnock campaign, but I think we can say the Warnock campaign, to use a football analogy, hook the field finally because they had spotted the Warnock campaign so many voters in those first two days, or the Republican Party did. I mean, really, that was more the legislature than the Walker campaign. Um, Catherine, how do you see what's happened so far in early voting? I mean, during this full, I guess, period?
3: Well, I think it's pretty amazing how much uh, turnout we had for early voting I mean those numbers are really shocking when you look at them compared to previous early voting and also compared to the uh november election um, i i i tend I tend to think that uh that like you said that early vo- that early early voting um helped uh, Senator Warnock a lot um the one thing I will say is I, I think we have a terrible system that allows for or not allows for, but um, is set up and with such long waits and such delays in the process. I I voted early on Thursday at a local library branch that's just a few minutes away from my apartment, and um, there there it's a lovely place. And there wasn't a long line, but there were a lot of delays in the process. You know, we had to fill out a form, and then they had to check the form. And it took probably five minutes at the registration table to finally get my card to actually vote. It just seemed like it didn't need to be that long, Um, especially since I'd filled the form out in line. So I think we really there really needs to be some analysis of how important all the, all those steps are and then how we can either have more voting machines, have more hours, have more something to alleviate these lines, because I only waited for 20 minutes. But there's people that waited for hours to vote in early voting. And it just doesn't seem like it seems like it should be easier than that for our, for our voters.
1: Yes, and that's kind of a longer conversation with the process yeah, too is, that impacts all elections, not just this one. Um, Kim, what's your take on what we've seen now through, in some places, seven days of early voting?
0: Well, I mean, you mentioned uh,
1: stats
0: that that some people have compiled. We 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 and we know some things as a result of that. Um, according to um, Georgia votes. Uh early voting turnout was about seventy four percent of the turnout for the general election early vote. Of course, they had longer to vote, a longer you know period of time in which to cast their votes uh, before the November election. So it was all compressed, and we set at least three one day records because it was so compressed. Now, political reports especially strong turnout among black voters. I'm sure a lot of that had to do with what Catherine was uh, talking about with, with some Democratic counties uh, getting to jump the gun and, and, and you know, start last weekend. And so what you ended up with there was black voters constituted 29% of the electorate uh, in for the November 8th vote. This week, they were 32.4%. So black votes up um now the a, a question that that we have to mull over um this short early voting period might mean that a larger share of this total vote might come on election day but it also could mean that maybe there'll simply be overall turnout on election
1: day so Which do you think it is, David? Yeah, it's really interesting um, because they say that in north Georgia, and I guess it depends on how much, you know, how far down that line goes, there may be a lot of storms. So could that depress um, turnout amongst the 14th and 9th districts, which are two of the most Republican Mm -hmm. districts? Sure. Especially in an election where I saw a poll where it said, Okay, Raphael Warnock is, according to our poll, uh, I want to say about three, four points ahead, but who do you think will win? 57% of the voters thought Raphael Warnock would win, and I thought in this harder-to-turn-out election, if you thought, well, my candidate's going to lose or I'm not that strong on my candidate because he talks about vampires and werewolves and bad uh, air from China and everything else – do I even want to you know, show up and vote? And so I think all that's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, I think, once again, this thing could go either way. But if you had to pick one person to be or one campaign to run, I think you'd be want to be the Warnock campaign. I said it last week. Nothing's really changed in the, in the numbers. I mean, it's still, like you said, it was 32% African-American turnout so far. It was 29% for the early vote last time. 27 overall, there may be less voters on Election Day because they're not voting for other races. They're not voting for some local candidate they know and support. They're not voting on the governor's race because maybe they like their or oh. other race, where they like the Republican candidate better. It's so many factors, I think, working in particular against Herschel Walker, who is the least popular statewide official, whereas on the Democratic side, according to the votes that were cast – Raphael Warnock is the most popular Democrat that was on the ballot. Oh,
0: oh, okay, I got another thing I want to ask you about.
1: 76,000 well, voters. Tim Tim, go ahead and hold that, hold that question on the other side of our guest then. Just All keep right. it in mind. But right now, I want to welcome in for the first time to the Kudzu Vine, one of the hottest names in Democratic politics. Welcome to the show, Mr. Simon Rosenberg.
2: Great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Well, thanks so much for willing to come on. Uh, Mr. Rosenberg, right off, I'm sure people may be familiar familiar with your work, but kind of just give us a, a brief bio of your work in politics.
2: Sure. I've been doing this a long time. I've I uh, worked on two presidential campaigns, the Dukakis and Clinton campaigns. I was in the war room in 1992 and in the movie and all that fun stuff. And I've since then um, worked, you know, been an advisor to the DNC, the DCCC, and I've been running my own organization that I founded in 1996 called NDN, which has been a strategy and political organization helping Democrats uh, deal with big changes that are going on in the world and and hopefully win elections and be uh, good at leading the country forward.
1: Yes, I've seen a new Democratic network. For a, a lot of yeah. years now, almost as soon as the Internet politics started coming around, you would see Indiana. Yeah. Um, What do you all do on a day-to-day basis?
2: Well, we're, we're a strategy center and a think tank. We try to look at the three big changes that are happening in the world, which is globalization and the change in media environment, the change in geography here in the United States, and to do thinking and, and research on how best the people in the center-left and Democrats can navigate these big changes. And so it's both traditional policy work as well as political strategy and how to, you know, uh, re, you know set, um, prosper in an age when our audiences are changing, our tools to reach audiences are changing, our politics are changing all the time. And so we try to help uh, our leaders stay on top of the big changes that are happening um, and and be more effective both in terms of their governing and also in terms of their politics. And so we, we have a very traditional think tank that's done a lot of work on everything from immigration to public economic policy, but a lot of the work that we're best known for has really come more in the political side of the business and, and helping us think through, um, you know, how to navigate changes. And so, for example, we introduced bilingual polling to the democratic party 20 years ago we created the first ever spanish language television ads for democrats 20 years ago and helped us develop our national hispanic strategy which in this last few elections has been instrumental to seeing uh we've seen big gains uh in the southwestern part of the united states which have been instrumental uh to our success in in recent years so uh, it's been a variety of work it's been a lot of fun i've enjoyed uh this and and in this last election i think the thing, the reason you're having me on is that um you know we we made a big argument that there was no red wave and the red wave wasn't coming um and we took on kind of the big establishment uh, argument that you heard from mainstream media and many uh, on our commentary that this big red wave was coming. And I argued going all the way back since the spring that there was no evidence of this red wave. And we took it on in the spring and summer, and people kind of backed away from it. Um, and then we took it on again in the fall. And even though we were not successful and the election ended with there being this sense that there was a big red wave, we had challenged Tom Bonnier and I, a colleague of mine, had challenged this using just regular data, and you know we ended up being far more right about what was going to, what happened in the election than, than most.
1: Yes, I love that line you would end most of your posts. The red wave may come, but it's not here yet. Um, yeah. The way I looked at it, you broke it down kind of like a sporting a sports event. This is this team's yeah. keys to victory. This is this team's keys to victory. This is what we're seeing that that team could do, and you based it on facts. Well, one of those big facts that you used was early voting numbers, and Tom Bonnier did as well, but you understood yep. how to pull those out too. And, of course, some people were suspect of early voting um, because it is new. But we're going to get more and more of it, and we're going to get more data. Yep. How do you think in yep. the future folks will be able to use early data to make predictions on about what's happening?
2: It's a great question, and let me, let me try to, since we have a little bit of time, let me try to explain what happened, how we got it right, because it's actually very instructive for not just future analysis about early vote, but other things too, right? And, and you know, in this sort of simplistic time that we live in where there's this horse race media coverage. So a year ago in, in October of 2021, I noticed that Joe Biden's approval rating had really started to come down. The combination of the Afghan War, and the return to school with COVID, um, and just general unhappiness around COVID in the fall, his numbers came down eight to ten points. But another measure that we all use in our business, which is called the Congressional Generic, which is are you a simple question which we ask all the time: Are you going to vote Republican? Are you going to do you intend to vote Republican or Democrat for Congress? That measure didn't change. And that's highly unusual. These things usually track one another. And I had this, I wrote a a column at the time that what we may be seeing is something that I called due to the MAGA hangover, that, you know, the Republicans made a very fateful decision in this election. Usually when a politics fails for you in two consecutive elections, the party tends to try something new. Well, the Republicans didn't do that. They doubled down on MAGA, which had just been rejected overwhelmingly in two consecutive elections. And I speculated a year ago that what we may be seeing is people may be disappointed in Biden, but that doesn't mean they're going to vote Republican because they're still s- too scared of MAGA, and that the driving, election, the driving force of the last two elections might be the driving force of this election too. The second thing I argued in that, in that essay is that Democrats were going to have a lot to run on. And it was going to help make the case that, you know, we had done a good job and to keep us in power for another two years. And then finally, I argued in that piece that we had all these new advanced tactics and much more money than we used to have in our campaigns, making it less likely we would see the kind of midterm drop-off that had happened in 2010 and 2014. And so I was very open to this idea that the Democrats were going to have a better election than many believed. And then in in May, in polling that we did and other national polling, after we saw the Dobbs leak and the Uvalde shooting, we st- I went and really did a lot of analysis about public polling, and it showed the election was, was competitive and close. It wasn't a wave election. And I came out and started really challenging the red wave story that you were hearing in the media, and then Dobbs happened. And then we had five House special elections, and in those how special elections? We overperformed our 2020 numbers by seven points. I mean, the opposite. It, I mean, it looked like a blue wave and not a red wave. It was sort of the opposite of what we all expected. And then we saw similar, you know, even better numbers in Kansas. And then we saw incredible fundraising for Democratic candidates and very weak fundraising for Republican candidates. Another measure of our intensity and a, and a measure that they weren't bringing it to this election. And then I connected with Tom Bonnier because he started doing a lot of analysis about Kansas and other, particularly around voter registration. And what we saw after Dobbs on June 24th was a huge shift in voter registration all across the country.
3: And it went, it
2: became much more Democratic, much more female, much more young women were registering. And this was an across-the-board structural change in the election, Similar to what similar data is what we saw in the overperformance in the House specials, overperformance in Kansas, overperformance in fundraising. Now we're seeing overperformance in voter registration. And so Tom and I started speculating, look, I mean, this looks good for Democrats. I mean, if this holds in the election, we're going to have a decent election. And then the early vote came. And the early vote, in part, the early vote is much more of a part of our politics than it used to be. Um, and, you know, it's both the early vote is both vote-by-mail and in-person voting, right? Um, and Tom built a site uh, called Target Early from his firm Target Smart where he made much more data available that about the early, about the early vote than we've ever had access to before. The free site, you can go look at it. He's got Georgia numbers now if you want to take a look. And I was able to go on there every day and do an analysis, of uh, not just of the national numbers, but I was looking at about 20 to 25 states. And every day the numbers came back the same. It was kind of stunning where we were doing much better than 2020, and we had a higher turnout than 2018, which was one of the largest midterm turnouts in American history. So, again, this data looked like all this other data we were seeing. And so um, – and then finally – if, you know, there was, the, in the big story that took place, and this is an important story I want to tell your listeners, is that um, the polling, the independent polling, was actually pretty good for Democrats, and in both nationally and in the states. What happened, though, is that about a month out, the Republicans started dumping a flood of these um, um, illegitimate polls into the marketplace to drive down 538 and Real Clear politics and the polling averages, to make the election look much more republican than it was. And so the reason I think a lot of analysts at the end of the election sort of fell for the red wave again was first of all they had already fallen for the red wave so they didn't they didn't want to look professionally embarrassed, right? They wanted the red wave to return. There were a couple national polls that showed the republicans doing better, but the balance of them actually were favorable to us. And then the state averages, you know, in Georgia and in Washington State and Colorado started all moving down because of this illicit campaign. And so everyone said, see, look, the averages are dropping. The national numbers don't look so good, red wave. And we pointed out that if you actually take out all these polls the Republicans were dumping, the averages actually look much better for us. And on the night before the election, I wrote, you know, if you look at the averages, here's what I think the Senate's going to look like. It looks like we're going to win in Georgia. Georgia. And, and, in, um, and in Pennsylvania and in Arizona, Nevada's too close to call, and we'll probably lose in, in Ohio and North Carolina and Wisconsin. And that's exactly what happened. And I did that based on just publicly available data. It wasn't some great insight, but I dismissed these kind of fake polls the Republicans did, which we now all know was part of a national campaign to sort of bamboozle and fool the national media into believing a red wave had come. And what's so hard for me to believe is that so many analysts, including many people that your listeners see on television and listen to them interpret the election, kind of fell for this kind of crude game. And so that's part of how our whole story of what we did. But your question about the early vote is really important because not only were we told that, well, you can't read anything into the House special elections, you can't read anything into a ballot initiative in Kansas, you can't read anything into the big Democratic fundraising advantages because Republicans really had more money than we did, right? But obviously, if our campaigns had much more money, that means on the ground, right, where it really matters, we had much more superior campaigns than they did. Um, and then we were told you can't read anything into the early vote. And, you know, the early vote, the, tr- the truth is that until Tom site was built, we didn't really have the tools to to understand the early vote the way that we – do now. And what I'm really proud of, to be honest, is that you're now seeing many mainstream commentators using Tom's site, the Target Early site, which is a partner, which is a, a, an official partner of NBC News, um, to do their own early vote analysis about Georgia. And so I do think we've sort of crossed a place now where Tom and I kind of helped explain to many that it doesn't mean that if you do really well in the House specials, the early vote. It's not predictive, but it's data, and all you have to do is interpret it. And what happened in this election was the data wasn't bad. The analysis was bad in many of the people that we all know that we trust and revere for their ability to interpret elections for us. And in some ways that's a more serious problem um, than having bad data because it means that very smart people were looking at the same data we were looking at and concluded and and came up and believed there was some different election taking place. So, you know, I do think you're, it's a great question. I gave you a really long answer, but I do think the early vote data, what we were able to do with Tom's site is compare each day to that, the vote in that state to what it had been on that day in 2020 and 2018. So it was really apples to apples, right? It was very, it was, it was you know, good data. And what it showed amazingly was all across the country it showed that Democrats were doing better than everybody expected. Um, and and we were, you know, the good news is we were right, right? I mean, we had a better election than we'd anticipated. And, and I think, you know, we should feel good about where the Democratic Party is today because of our third consecutive strong election performance.
1: Yes, that was an incredibly informative answer. Probably thought... I've probably thought of five of questions I could ask you, but I've got to be fair to my co-host, Catherine and Tim. So I'm going to pass it to them. And if there's anything else okay. that I just have to come back with at the end, I will. So okay. Catherine? Okay.
3: Thank you so much for being on. That was an absolutely wonderful answer to that question and so full of information that I do have, before I get into my question, I do have one sort of follow-up comment question Yep. Do you think that um, Do you think that anything that that the campaigns have responded better to early voting in the last two cycles as well? I noticed I, I've been following politics for it sounds like about as long as you have, maybe a little longer. Um, yep. And I feel like up until even twenty eighteen that a lot of campaigns were still waiting until this sort of last 10 days to really push their advertising and mailing and everything. But I felt like that was a little bit improved this year, um, that they were starting earlier and we were talking about early voting more. And I wonder if you think that has any impact on sort of the overall early voting uh, data. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, this is a really important discussion, and because our politics really – COVID <clears throat> changed the Democratic Party. I mean, we had to run an election in 2020 without being able to go door-to-door and do the kind of kind – of, the way that we do politics. We we spend much more money in our campaigns um, because we have more uh, what are called episodic voters, voters that don't vote regularly – we tend to have much more robust field operations where you know, we're doing all the traditional GEO TV stuff that we all do as Democrats, right? Well, we weren't able to do that in 2020 because of COVID. And I think what happened is it caused there to be a big rethink and a relook at these basic ways that we run campaigns. And Joe Biden's team and the DNC, to their credit, um, spent an unprecedented amount of money building field organizations in the battleground states that were designed to push our called prime voters, the voters that, you know, vote all the time to push them into voting early. And the reason we did that is that if for your listeners, and this is a really important new part of our business. And part of the reason my Twitter feed sort of took off in the last, you know, in October was that I was telling people that, Hey, if you vote early, you're actually going to help Democrats increase turnout. And here's right. why. And, and the reason why is that, you know, when you vote early, you get taken off the GOTV rolls. Campaigns know you voted. And now they can move on to turn out people who are less likely to vote. And in a midterm election where there's a much bigger pool of voters who we don't know if they're going to vote, that really, really matters. And so I do think that for the first time there was this really big national consciousness asking Democrats to vote early and not wait for election day. And I think that's a permanent change. Um, And and the way to think about it for your listeners is that wouldn't you rather be turning voters out over two weeks than over one day? Right? It's just a very pragmatic thing, right? Right, right. And so what it means is that everyone who's a good Democrat in this election, and if you watch my Twitter feed, I was tweeting on this a lot and I was getting an incredible amount of reaction to this, of people saying, I didn't realize that by voting early I can actually increase Democratic turnout. I can make our campaigns work better. I can make it harder for there to be problems on Election Day and in the counting and all that. It makes our democracy work better. So, yes, there was an unprecedented effort to move Democrats into voting early, and it was really successful. And what you're now seeing is you're seeing Republicans now openly talking about how the fact that they blew their, their early vote. Did they have to change the way they run their campaigns to, make, to prevent us from running away from the early vote the way that we did? And they understood well, the Georgia, strategic Brilliant, brilliance. Yeah. Go ahead. In Georgia, what
3: they'll do is just shorten the early voting time right. or
2: right. get rid of it. <laughs> well, what's interesting is in this in the in the runoff, you've seen it, there's been a much shorter early voting time, but you've seen the numbers on each day have been. M- immense and it's because people are now getting used to voting early I mean you've are you been around long enough it was Republicans who voted early right we voted on election day and that's really changed and this is a big problem I mean I wrote a column 10 days before the election saying you know if we end up doing better than we expected the Republicans basically discouraging people to vote early may be the reason they end up you know having a bad election I do think they now realize that it's just stupid, frankly, to tell people to vote on election day. It's just stupid. And they had to do it because Trump is, you know, an extremist and has brought crazy things into their politics. But you even saw in Arizona one of Trump's most important allies, the state chair there, um, uh, Carrie Lake, not Carrie Lake, I'm forgetting her name right now. She, a week before the election, voted early and said, hey, hey, You know, Democrats are voting too much. Now everyone's got to go vote early. And they completely abandoned the whole way they were, you know, um, because we were running up such big numbers in the early vote. And so it's a great question. And I think it it, it was, you know, we we did better in this election um, than we expected for a a lot of reasons. One is, you know, we did a good job. They're still too crazy, right? But also our (laughs) grassroots and, and our field operations and just regular old Democrats, right? You know, really, they gave our candidates the money they needed. They did the work on the ground. They wrote their postcards. They did their door knocking. They made their phone calls. All those things, there was a huge outpouring of regular people just going and fighting hard for the future of their country. And, and that's part of the reason we also did so well.
3: Okay, I have one more question. I know you are not yeah. really weighing in on the runoff election here in Georgia. I just wonder why you think it's like, what's so compelling. I just, I I think it's a really interesting circumstances that we have this very capable, uh, successful, eloquent Senator. And then this like whack job. And how is it that they can be so close in polling? Is it, do you think it's just remember the R that winning next winning
2: name but listen, winning an elect in a state like Georgia by three or four points is like a landslide right? I mean you just have to <laughs> yeah. view it differently right i mean winning we Mark Kelly won in Arizona by five points. John Fetterman won by five points mark Joe Biden won Arizona by point three right We won Pennsylvania by one point in on election day in 2020. Um, you know, Warnock didn't wasn't ahead on election day, so we did much better in 2020 than we in in Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Colorado, New Hampshire, Washington than we did in 2020. In a supposed red wave year, we actually did better than 2020. So it was an incredible performance. I mean, where we ran, the national party came in. And we spent the money on TV. We built these big field operations. We really blew it out against the Republicans. And so, you know, winning in Georgia, a state that we had not won in statewide for a long time, if Warnock ends up winning this runoff by three or four points – and remember, runoffs were designed to elect to help Republicans win – Right, we never used to do well in runoffs. We would get, we would do well on election day, and then the runoffs would come, and you know, black voters oh, yeah, wouldn't turn out. Them. Right, right, no, them. Runoffs, like, oh no, Right, right, no, 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 so we'll lose. No, right, runoffs <laughs> were a disaster for Democrats. So the idea that we won the Senate in those two runoffs in 2021 was a miracle and a, and a sign of just our increasing strength as a party and our ability to win elections in tough places. And you're seeing it here happen again. I mean, Wardock is probably going to win, even though, you know, Kemp ended up doing very, very well. And, and, you know, remember, I mean, everyone on the Republican side thought that, that Kemp would drag Walker over the finish line, right? That was the general view that, you know, that Kemp was going to be just too strong against A.C. Abrams. Well, that didn't happen, and in part because Warnock, to your point, is a great senator and a great candidate and a very good man and a virtuous person, right? And, um, and, and Walker, I always felt that we would do well in this runoff because when it was just one election and there wasn't all these other noise and elections running around and Republicans had this vote for this guy, even though it meant that it was, the Senate wasn't in play, it was just going to be very hard. I mean, they got they made their vote for Kemp. They got their guy you know, they can saw off and let Walker go. And and I will say that the other thing is we are seeing – I've been not wanting to project in this election because we don't really have apples-to-apples data, and so I don't want to push the early vote beyond what it's capable of doing here, right? Tom and I are both very careful about that. Um, But let's be clear. The polling is really good. Warnock's raised a ton of money. The early vote is actually really encouraging, right? I mean, it looks good. We should win on Tuesday. Well, thank you so
3: much. And I really want to thank you for creating your organization and doing all this work. And it's so great that you've kept at it because we all know that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And it sounds like you've been doing it for a long time and we're finally seeing you know, real results. So I really appreciate that work. As a just a little, you know, volunteer down here in Georgia, i yep. appreciate that. No, and listen, I'm gonna thank pass you it to Tim. And...
2: Hey Tim.
0: Uh, good evening, sir. Um yeah in in the recent election, of course, candidates endorsed by Donald Trump, well to put it charitably, did not fare that well. Yes. Sir. And yet Donald Trump himself remains pretty darn popular among Republican voters. Why are both those things true?
2: Oh, it's a great. Also, oh, it's just a really good question tonight. This is a good. You you all do a good job. I mean, these are these are excellent questions. Um, look, part of what happened in the Republican Party, and you saw it with Liz Cheney and Bill Kristol is that uh, and other national Republicans, Michael Steele and Matthew Dowd, right, who used to be Bush's guys, now a Democrat, there was a lot, there was an unprecedented effort this time by Republicans to tell other Republicans not to vote Republican. We've never really seen anything like this since we've all been doing this, but this kind of level, you know, that Bill Crystal's organization spent $10 million in the battleground states of ads of Republicans telling other Republicans not to vote for these crazy candidates. Liz Cheney campaigned on the ground in some of these states, including in Arizona, challenging Republicans not to vote for these crazy folks. And so, I think there was a a pretty powerful national story that was telling moderate Republicans, you know, not not the MAGA Republicans, that they just couldn't do it. Right, they couldn't go for these people. That they really were too crazy and. I think it was very effective. And so it means that that Trump could still win the Republican nomination, but he's not going to win the presidency unless he has every Republican behind him. And there is a big chunk of the Republican Party, you know, that has split off from MAGA. I mean, if we were in a parliamentary system, there would be two, you know, the MAGA Party and the more traditional Republican Party would have split by now, and they would have been two separate parties. But we don't have a system like that. We only have two parties in America. Um, and so I do think the Republicans have a big problem. I mean, in in, a, in Washington, the third district in Washington, for example, where a guy named Joe Kent, who was arguably the most MAGA of all the House Republicans running in the whole country, in a very Republican district, was beat by uh, a young woman who owns an auto body shop. And, and part of what happened in that race is that the um you know the 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 top Republicans in that district endorsed her, raised money for her, and openly campaigned against the Republican Joe Joe Kent. So I, I do think that some of those efforts are have been very effective and important. Because remember in an election, as I was descri- you know, talking about earlier, you know, two or three points here or there is the difference between, you know, George Bush I mean George Bush won the election in in two thousand by six hundred votes, right? And so You know, winning a point or two uh, here and there is how you build a majority and how you win elections. And so I do think this opposition by Republicans against other Republicans has become a very meaningful part of our politics. And I think it's going to be one of the most interesting things to see what happens with those people all across the country. It wasn't just at a national level. It was in Michigan and Washington and and in in, uh, Ohio and in um, Colorado and in uh, you know Arizona, you've seen now a big a chunk of Republican leaders split off from MAGA. Will they stay with the Democrats to make sure that we have a good election in 2024? We have to work hard to make sure they feel welcome in our family and and have a seat at our table because they they've earned it. I mean they worked very hard to help us defeat MAGA in this election.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you you on your uh, blog
2: described
0: the midterms this year as a I believe the exact words were stay the course election. Yeah. Uh yeah. did major issues that popped up like say abortion uh, are yeah. some of the things that the president got through congress. Did those affect that as well as obviously yeah. some of the uh some of the uh, alternatives that the Republicans put forward. Yeah. Took forth
2: it's and, really uh, It's a great, another great question, because I think, I think that, you know, there are almost no incumbent lost anywhere in the country in either party. It's kind of incredible, right? I mean, because you think Mm -hmm. that, I mean, things have been so unsettled in the country and that you would have, there was a lot of belief that this was going to be a throw the bums out election, right? A red wave was going to come and toss out incumbents all across the country. I mean, this was part of the reason why I didn't think a red wave was ever coming is that, you know, people. Governors were very popular in their states, in both parties, right? There were very few governors that were unpopular. And I think part of what happened this election is that the country's been through a lot. COVID was really hard. Um, you know, Trump was hard for a lot of people. I mean, Trump, even if you were Republican, you knew that Trump was kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, we'd had the insurrection on January 6th. And I think people really just want, wanted politics. They were like, look, things are pretty good now we're not going to rock the boat, right? It's not perfect. economy isn't, you know, inflation's a little too high, all this stuff. But, you know, we don't want crazy to come back and we don't want to unsettle things. Things are finally starting to feel settled down. We get to go coach Little League and cook dinners with our families and all the things that we, you know, see our relatives and travel to see our cousins and all the things that we didn't get to do during COVID. And I think people are like, hold on, you know, like, let's get back to normal life here. Things are good enough. They're not perfect, but they're good enough. That issue about things being good enough was because I think Joe Biden's been a good president. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and yeah, inflation's too high, but it's too high everywhere. And it wasn't Joe Biden's fault. I mean, that was the fault of Russia and Saudi Arabia raising our gas prices right before the election. It's due to the war that Putin began in Ukraine that drove up food and gas prices all around the world. And I think that people gave Biden the benefit of the doubt. It was like, look, it wasn't perfect, but the guy's trying really hard. And he ended his the year very strong by passing all those pieces of legislation. It looked like that was the Joe Biden we elected. Because I think people view Joe Biden as old but experienced. And what happened for a while is he just became old. And then in the last few months, he became experienced again. And a and guy who looked like he was running the government. And, and I do think that the extremism of Republicans and, and whatever, however you think they're extreme, whether it's abortion, whether you think it's their disregard for democracy, you know, that you had, if you were worried about that and you had voted against the Republicans twice, they gave you a lot to worry about. Abortion was a major issue in the election, um, certainly for people of childbearing years, younger people. This is life altering for them in many cases and and you mm-hmm. know uh and so I do think it was both of those I think there was this general sense that they just have gone too far, you know that they've mm-hmm. just gone too far, they're a little too crazy, they gotta cool it you know and and that's why, in the battleground states, we actually you know, there were really two elections, right there was the elections in the battlegrounds where we spent a lot of money where we controlled the information environment, where we were able to explain to voters that, yeah, these are those kind of crazy Republicans you don't want to vote for, and that, you know, we've done a good enough job. And then there was the outside the battleground. And and inside the battleground, we did well, right? We did better than 2020. Outside the battleground, Republicans did pretty well, right? I mean, they made gains in New York and California and in Florida and Texas, the four biggest states. so, you know, the lesson for me in this is that, you know, we have to be focused much more about controlling the information environment every day. We can't let things like the red wave come and that are misleading people. We have to fight harder to make sure that the Republican noise machine that you know very well down where you are, you know, doesn't always drown us out. And and we've got to be more aggressive in that regard. That's the old war room mm-hmm. from 30 years ago, right? I mean, what Carville mm-hmm. and Stephanopoulos and what we did and Bill Clinton is that, We wanted to win the information war every day. It wasn't just about responding aggressively, and we did that in 1992. We we need to relearn some of those lessons, those old lessons, and apply them to this new information environment that we're in. I want
0: to ask you one more quick question, then I'm going to throw it back to David. Uh, Is there any way that Kevin McCarthy can herd enough cats to get 218 (laughs) votes and become speaker?
2: I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I was doubtful at first that he wasn't going to be successful. I thought somehow, but the the opposition to him, he needed to win by 20 seats. I mean, I I was often Mm -hmm. saying in interviews in the last few months that the worst possible outcome in the election for the Republican Party was us keeping the Senate and McCarthy having less than a 10-seat majority. And because then it meant that Marjorie Taylor Greene and the crazy people were going to be in charge, um, and that's what's happened. And and it's it is he's got a real problem. I mean, I I don't know that he's going to make it. I mean, the people that I know that know the Republican Party better than I do believe there's a very real chance that he fails and that Steve Scalise ends up becoming the Republican leader. And I think that will be bad for the National Republican Party. I don't. Th- I think Steve Scalise. Uh, comes off as kind of a regional politician and not a national politician. I don't think he'll speak well to these suburban districts that they the Republicans just won in California and in um, and in New York and other places. And I think you're going to see they're, they're going to have a very hard time, um, you know, getting to 218 on anything because there are a bunch of Demo- Republicans who won who look a lot more like Democrats. Right, the, the Republicans who won in New York and in and in uh, California and a handful of other states, those folks are pretty liberal on the Republican spectrum, right? And are in you know Democratic you know districts that in some cases Joe Biden won. Um, and then you're going to have the folks in the extreme, the Marjorie Taylor Greene extreme. How you know you're going to? It's going to require a very dexterous and capable leader to manage all that. I don't think Kevin McCarthy Mm -hmm. is a dexterous and capable leader. I don't think he's got the kind of political skills required to manage a very complicated situation. So I don't Mm -hmm. know what's going to happen. I think, I think it's incredible. They haven't locked down the votes yet. And I don't know if you saw, but one of Marjorie Taylor Greene's colleagues said that they're going to be backing somebody for speaker who's not actually in the Congress. And whether that's Newt Gingrich or Donald Trump or, Somebody else that we don't know about. The rumor is that it may be Gingrich. I believe it wow. Right. Uh, that. that My yeah, no, wow. <laughs> My goodness, is, that's the exact right response, right? Well, um, you know, I, one of the one of one of the most awful men to set foot on our national stage in the last thirty years. Um well, But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. I'm going to
0: throw it back to a fellow that actually worked in a congressional campaign and try, tried to
1: beat Newt Gingrich. Go ahead, David. Yes, I'm from Jonesboro, and um, Newt Gingrich was the congressman when I came of age, and I worked for David Worley, who came so, so close to defeating him back in 1990. Well, uh, Simon, I would mentioned asking you more questions, but you have been so gracious with your time and given such incredible political information. I'm not going to do that other than we've mentioned the new democratic network, we've mentioned your blog, we've mentioned social media. If you could leave our yeah. listeners with how they can access that, uh, moving forward.
2: Sure. Um, I'm still on Twitter. Who knows how much longer we're all going to be there. Um, <laughs> and it's Simon, Simon WDC. I, 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 uh, I did a post this weekend where I spoke ill of both Elon Musk and Donald Trump in a single post, and I had more people – I had more accounts attack me in the last 24 hours than any other day that I've ever been on Twitter. (laughs) Um, And it was on a weekend, right? Um, And then – so Simon WDC on Twitter, and then NDN – my organization is (laughs) NDN.org. Excuse me. And you can – Sign up uh, for our newsletter there, and, th- and those are the, the two easiest ways to stay in touch.
1: Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And if this was a, a not an unenjoyable experience, maybe sometime in 2023 we can have you back on and discuss more forward-looking things.
2: Yeah, I'd love to do it. I mean, maybe February, March, we can you know just stay in touch. I enjoyed the conversation. Your questions were terrific. Your listeners are lucky to have you, the three of you, and uh, happy to come back and do a check-in from time to time. Thank Great. you, Thank sir. you so All much. Right. Thank you, sir. Okay, everybody, have a good night. Yes.
3: You
1: too. You too. Good evening. That was Simon Rosenberg of the New Democratic Network, uh, somebody that really understands how to look at information and make the best of it, uh, the best analysis from it. Um well we were Tim I think you had a question for me about uh the runoff and then it we'll I, kind of finish that up and then we'll give our predictions and we're going to call this thing an evening. Yeah I, I was so, going to mention that that another stat was that 76,000 voters who
0: voted in uh in this past week did not vote in the general election. We know that uh Uh, There were more voters under 30. Uh, We know that there were more Hispanic, more Asian voters. Those are all three Democratic-leaning constituencies. So just based on those little stats I gave you, wouldn't you say those 76,000 voters that came forward were
1: most likely Democratic voters? One would have to think, I mean, somebody would have to have been like, well, I can't make it out to the general, but man, I've really got to push Herschel by himself over the yeah. top. I mean, I guess that person exists. I just can't see that there's 76, um, 100 or 1,000 of them. 76,000. <laughs> 70, I just can't imagine you could fill a football stadium up with that crowd. Catherine, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I, I don't think uh, – I, I agree with David. I, don't, I just don't see a bunch of people coming out having not voted in the general to come out and vote for Herschel Walker. It doesn't seem likely. Yes. Well, before we get on predictions, voters.
1: something else Yeah, that the, the really grabbed my attention this past week was the story of uh, somebody we had on the show just about a year ago. Um, current lieutenant governor of Georgia, who, who was going to finish his term up because he didn't run for reelection, Jeff Duncan, he obviously has been critical earlier than this of Herschel Walker. But he told a story of how he went to vote early, didn't tell who he was thinking about voting for, but just said he could not continue to stay in line to bring himself to vote for, I guess in particular – Herschel Walker, since he is a Republican elected official, but did not stay in line to vote for Raphael Warnock either. Um, Catherine, what do you make of that story, and what impact do you think that story might have
3: on other voters? I think it's a non-story story. Like you went to vote, and then you didn't vote, and you didn't vote because you didn't want to vote for Herschel Walker. Well, what? there's nothing there. It would be a story if you said he waited and voted for Reverend Warnock, but I just thought it was a non-story, and I don't think it had any impact.
1: Okay, Tim, same question.
0: Well, I don't know if either one of you have seen it, but there's a brand new television ad out in which Jeff Duncan saying that is featured, and and you know they framed the the whole commercial because they had Gary Black on there too. They framed the whole commercial around. See here. Uh, rock rib Republicans, well known Republicans, highly elected Republicans, cannot even bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker. So, you know, anybody that's still sitting on the fence—that that's a Republican that just does not want to vote for Herschel Walker—maybe that ad will drive them to vote for Reverend Warnock or sit it out. Yeah, well, I'm glad I, to you know um, that. Um, a lot I'm of glad of to hear
3: that they go use ahead, that.
0: Catherine yeah they did
3: i'm glad yeah. I'm glad to hear that because if it's good for anything that's yeah, what it's good for mhm yeah I,
1: I tell you I, I've heard um Dan Pfeiffer and others that work for President Obama talk about the idea of a permission structure. You yeah. have to create a permission structure for people to do things that are not necessarily what their partisan leaning would tell you to do and could this uh oh. Um, you know what Jeff Duncan did, which you know, I mean, obviously, I would think you've been better if he'd have saved his get time and gas, and either not gone or gone all the way and just gone ahead and voted for Reverend or not, because obviously we had him on the show. He's a far more well reasoned individual than Herschel Walker. Um, but could mm-hmm. this create a permission structure in which Republicans that understand that Herschel Walker is not really capable of serving? as an independent U.S. Senator, could that, they say, yeah, I'm just not going to show up and vote. You know, maybe I just can't vote for a Democrat, but I just can just not show up and vote. And if you get 76,000 of those folks, you know, not showing up, and I do think there's 76,000 Republicans that, you know, by and large always vote Republican, but just know Herschel Walker is not qualified. If they don't show up, that could be a huge impact on the election, and there's where I do think it has an impact. Um, so it would be interesting to see, and then also uh, coming out of this, you know, Jeff Duncan already was probably creating some issues within the Republican base, and I don't you know, dislike the fact that he's a principled individual willing to do that, um, but this is going to create more issues for him. And I'd love to talk to him about those issues in the, in the future, too, um, just because I, I do think it is interesting when somebody stands on principle over partisanship at times. Um, mm-hmm. Well, let's go ahead and start with our predictions. Um, Catherine, what, what's your thoughts on what will happen You know, Tuesday night?
3: I think Reverend going is going to win, uh, but I do think it's going to be very close.
1: Yeah. Uh, Tim? I'm gonna say Reverend Warnock
0: wins by between fifty and seventy thousand votes. That'll be pretty close, but I, I believe that'll be about where it'll be.
1: Okay. I'm gonna go ahead and say Reverend Warnock wins as well. And here's the interesting part of the prediction, hopefully. I think he's actually gonna get a larger percent of the vote. Now that may be tenths of a point, not full, to, you know, whole numbers. Then he beat Kelly Loeffler. Um, the turnout seems to be leaning in that direction. And then you add to the fact that even though Kelly Loeffler did not connect with a lot of Georgia, a lot of Georgians, um, she was far more qualified than Herschel Walker. Uh, you know, as misguided as some of her positions may have been. She never told us where she stood on werewolves and vampires and bad China. <laughs> air. So um, I actually think uh, this may show some sanity for Georgia in which Reverend Warnock, and also he'll have incumbency on his side as well, actually expands his win by, you know, maybe 10 of a point. Well, um, we want to thank Simon Rosenberg for coming on the show again. Um, next week we're going to have from NBC News, the reporter covering Latino politics, um, Suzanne Gamboa, is uh, agreed to be on the show. So excited to have her tell us more about Latino voters. Also, we'll know what happened. Either we'll say, hey, that's what we all predicted, or we'll say, we'll be in Crow and, and speculating on what a um, Senator Herschel Walker will do. Um, but <laughs> until then, it's
2: been a cutscene.
1: Good night, guys.
3: <laughs> justice.